0: Turn your Bibles tonight to Exodus chapter number 16, Exodus chapter number 16, and uh let's see, see if I've got anything on. Yeah, it's on. All right, we're good and go. Exodus chapter 16, I appreciate the Lord meeting with us this morning. Let me just praise Him. I want to thank the Lord for meeting with us. What a blessing that that was, man. I, I, I certainly don't deserve for the Lord to meet with me, but I'm glad there is a meeting place, aren't you? Exodus chapter 16, and I want to preach to you for a few moments now on one of the things that we mentioned this morning, but I want to give you a little bit different perspective on it tonight. Exodus chapter 16, and let's begin reading together verse number 11. Exodus chapter number 16, we'll begin reading at verse number 11. The Bible says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak unto them, saying, At even... Ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it came to pass that at even the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the host. And when the dew that lay was gone up, behold, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a small round thing, as small as the hoar frost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it they said one to another, it is manna, for they wist not. What it was, word manna means what is it? And they said, what is it? And somebody said, well, what is it? And they said, what is it is what it is. Amen? They said, we do not know, for they wist not what it was. Moses said unto them, this is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating, an omer for every man, according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tents. And the children of Israel did so, and gathered some more, some less. And when they did meet it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to his eating. And Moses said, Let no man leave of it till the morning. Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto Moses. but Some of them left of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. Moses was wroth with them, and they gathered it every morning, every man according to his eating. When the sun waxed hot, it melted. And It came to pass that on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. He said unto them, This is that which the Lord hath said, Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which ye will bake today, And seed that ye will seethe, and that which remaineth over lay up for you to be kept until the morning. And they laid it up till the morning as Moses bade, and it did not stink, neither was there any worm therein. And Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Today ye shall not find it in the field. Six days ye shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. And it came to pass that there went out some of the people on the seventh day for to gather, and they found none. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for that the Lord hath given you the Sabbath, therefore he giveth you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide ye every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel called the name thereof manna. And it was like coriander seed white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commandeth. Fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot, and put an omer full of manna therein, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel did eat manna forty years until they came to a land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came under the borders of the land of Canaan. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for letting us be here tonight, Lord. I'm thankful for a good day, a day of wherein you've met with us. Lord, this is a banner day. It's a day where you spoke to our hearts, where you met with us, where you stirred us, Lord where heaven reached down and touched earth, Lord, where you reached down and touched our souls, and we're so thankful for what you did. But Lord, we also are looking forward, expectant of what you'll do tonight. So I pray that you'd take the administration of this service. May everything that's said and done please Christ. May He be glorified in all that we say and in all that we do. Lord, when we leave here this evening, by your will, I pray we'd be able to say that we've left in perfect obedience, having seen you do a work in us, That's for your glory and for our good. Lord, I love you. I thank you for loving us. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This morning we spent a few moments looking at the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony in the Old Testament. and We spent some time looking at the dimensions of it and the construction, the communion of it. And then we ended our message this morning talking about the contents of the Ark. There, of course, were three things that were contained in the Ark of the Covenant. And in many ways, they picture for us the criteria or basis or foundations of God's meeting with mankind. We talked about the tables of the law and how they represent for us the perfect life of the Lord Jesus. Man, I'm glad we've got a perfect Savior. Uh, We don't just have a pretty good Savior. We've got a perfect Savior. And then we talked about the rod that budded, Aaron's rod that budded, and how that represented for us, not just his perfect life, but his risen life. That he died for our sins, that he rose again the third day. You couldn't be saved by a dead Savior. A dead Savior could not save you. And I think sometimes we do not lay the appropriate emphasis on the truth of the resurrection. We just view it as sort of a touchdown dance that the Lord did over the devil. But can I tell you something? Had it not been for a risen Savior, uh, there'd be no hope. There'd be no help. There'd be no salvation. If Christ be not risen, then your faith is in vain. You are yet in your sins. But we also talked about the pot of manna that was kept in the ark. How that that in many ways represented for us the given life of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the fact that he took that perfect life and laid it down on the cross of Calvary. But something you'll learn as you study the Bible is that oftentimes, particularly in very important events and and objects in Scripture, there'll be multiple applications of a given type. You say, well, preacher, why would that be? Well, because the type is merely a vehicle that serves the interest of the doctrines that it's communicated. You see, the Bible is not meant to be a puzzle book that we spend all of our time trying to unravel and unriddle. In fact, in the New Testament, Christ uh, and, and, and gives us the truth of New Testament light. In the New Testament, we are given the light that we are to walk in, and light is shed upon Old Testament Scripture uh, without any reserve throughout the New Testament. And the Old Testament types that are given will find that there are times that depending on the context, they might represent different things. Or we might say it this way, that in them we can see a type of several different things. You say, well, preacher, give me an example of that. Well, I will give you an example of that. When I read the story of Isaac in the Old Testament being taken up Mount Moriah and laid down upon the altar, how can we not read that and see in Isaac a type of the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the obedient son, faithful to the Father that pleases him that carries the wood of his own sacrifice up the hill and willingly lays down upon the altar that he might be offered. Man, if that ain't Jesus, I've not read my Bible right. Amen. And yet we find there's a point in that story that Isaac quits being Jesus and starts being me and you. You say, preacher, at what point? At the point that the angel reached out and grabbed Abraham's hand. And he was spared. And then all of a sudden, there's a new type in this passage because Abraham looks afar off and he sees a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And now that ram is a picture of the Lord Jesus. And Isaac, in many ways, is a picture of you and I. He's no longer the sacrificed son. Now he is the spared son who is going on to live a fresh life and a continued life throughout the rest of his days. And so there are times in the Bible... And I'll just give you a piece of advice in studying your Bible. That you never take a type and then mold your doctrine around it. But rather you always take the doctrine and use it as the preeminent thought and the prism through which to view the Old Testament time. Because the purpose is not that we find a bunch of really cool things in the Old Testament to talk about. But the purpose is that we learn the doctrine of New Testament truth as it applies to us and that we see within all of this beautiful woven uh, tapestry of a narrative that God's providential hand has been uh, operating and working according to a perfect plan the entire time. And so when we study about the manna, we find that in John chapter number 6, Christ inextricably ties His earthly life and the testimony of that life To this bread. He describes himself as the bread of life. He says it in no uncertain terms. The manna was not really the bread. I am the bread. The manna did not really give life. But I really give life. Yet we find other times that the manna is described. Not as a picture of the Savior. But rather as a picture of the Scriptures. So what do you mean preacher? Well listen to what the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter number 8. Verse number 2. The Bible says thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread alone alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. In other words, he's saying the truth of the manna was that as God fed you with that bread, and it was not the bread, it was the promise of God that put sustenance in your body. So likewise, you might lean upon the word of God in the way that your fathers leaned upon the manna in the wilderness. Christ, of course, would quote this very verse In Luke chapter number 4, when tempted of Satan to turn the rocks into loaves of bread, biscuits really is what they were. Somebody say amen. But uh, Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You see, when the Lord gave the model prayer and he prayed, Give us this day our daily bread. That would have resonated in the Jewish mind. They would have thought about the manna and recognized in it the promise of God and the provision of God. And so manna can, of course, be a picture of the Savior. But just as the manna pictures Christ in His perfection, so it also pictures the Scriptures in their power and promise and provision. I want us to take a few moments tonight and think about this, the message of the manna. What does the manna teach us about the Word of God and about our relationship to it? I'm not sure there's much more important a topic a Christian can examine than their relationship with the Bible. If your relationship with the Word of God is not what it ought to be, if it's incorrect, if it's neglected and disregarded, then everything else in your life will fall to pieces. But if you'll get your relationship with the Bible right, then God has a daily means to be able to correct and adjust the deficits in your life. And I think when we read this passage about them daily receiving manna and daily eating manna, leaning upon it and looking for it and desiring it, we have a picture of what our attitude should be towards the Word. So I want you to think with me three thoughts tonight about the message of the manna. This is a lengthy passage that we've read from verse 11 down to verse 35. We won't use every scripture that we looked at, but I want you to notice with me verses 14 and 15. And I want to say a word about the properties of the manna. God goes to great length to describe what this manna was like, and there are certainly many questions I would continue to have concerning it, but God does not leave us without any instruction about what it is. It says in verse 14, when the dew that lay was gone up, behold upon the face of the wilderness, there lay a small round thing as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. And when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, It is manna, for they wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. And I think sometimes we imagine in our mind that God was just dropping nilla wafers everywhere in the wilderness. Amen. And I'll tell you, that's not the wilderness, that's heaven. Somebody say amen to that. No, this was not a final product that God was dropping out of heaven. But rather, it was. we would think of it almost like a meal or a grain that God was allowing to come up upon the surface of the earth. That's why later on, Moses will talk about them baking it or them seething it because this was a raw material that they could gather up and use as the basis to be able to bake bread. And that's how God fed them in the wilderness. But I want you to notice what they call it in verse number 50. The Bible says the children of Israel saw it. They said one to another, it is manna, for they wist not what it was. We said it a moment ago, tongue in cheek, but it really is what they said. They said, what is this? And they said, we don't know what it is. So let's just name it. What is it? Amen. We have no clue what to call it. We have no clue how to describe it. There was no earthly analog that could compare or measure with the manna that was given. And you say, preacher, what does that teach you about the Word of God? Well, let me just say it this way. The manna was strange to them. Can I tell you something? This Bible is strange to us in our natural condition. Paul describes the natural man's relationship with the Word of God and says the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The flesh and the natural man, it's not just he don't want to, he can't receive the truth of the Word of God. He cannot do it. It can only be through a spiritual exercise that we accept and apply the truth of God's Word because the reality is our flesh has no earthly analog for revealed, inspired Scripture. It is not something that appeals to or interacts exclusively with the intellect. It's not something that is predicated on human reasoning, logic, and rationale. And yet it is not a random book of religious potpourri, devoid of cohesiveness and devoid of meaning and devoid of comprehension. In fact, the Bible is an eminently ordered book that is very distinct and very deliberate and very decisive in the truth that's given to us. So why is it that we have such a difficult time with the truth of God's Word? It's not because we do not necessarily desire it, but it's because our natural man cannot receive it doesn't know what to do with it. It's only through a spiritual approach to the Word of God that we can appropriately appreciate and apply it. Now, let me make very clear what I mean when I say that. I do not mean to spiritualize what the Word of God says. But what I mean is that the condition of your heart is going to dictate the ability to read and understand the Word of God. I believe that we ought to literally interpret the Bible. Because, uh, God literally gave it to us. And uh, I am a literalist in regards to my interpretation of Scripture. I believe that's biblical. I'm a biblicist and I am a, a literal interpretationist of the Bible. That means this, that when I read the Bible, I take it literally unless the Bible gives me some reason to view it figuratively. And there are places that are obviously figurative in the Bible in which we ought to understand them in a figurative sense. But I do not default to a figurative perspective. I default to a literal interpretation of the Bible. I described it to someone this way the other day. I stand on the... The hill of literal interpretation i must be moved off that hill when i read a passage i can be if the passage gives me no room to stand on the hill of literal interpretation but i always start on that hill i always start by saying god means what he says and he said what he means exactly as we are to understand it the old rule of bible study when plain sense makes common sense seek no other sense I am a literal interpretationist. But by the same token, I recognize that it is not through the natural man that I can understand the truth of Scripture. But rather, I must be in a spiritual disposition if I am to understand the truth of the Word of God. Now, unless you think I'm preaching some sort of, of mysticism, well, here's what I mean when I say a spiritual disposition. An attitude of obedience. An attitude of Humility. An attitude of receptiveness. Not approaching the Word of God and saying, God, I dare you to try to speak to me. But instead coming to Scripture and saying, Now, Lord, I need the truth of it. I crave the truth of it. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, Lord, so my soul thirsteth for thee. God, I need to hear from you. But if instead we approach it and try to set for it parameters and barriers of our own intellect and try to expect God to pass our tests and to take our quizzes, we will find the Bible to be a strange book to us. It was strange to them. They didn't understand it. They didn't know how to define it. Let me just say this, and I want to encourage you a little bit tonight. You don't have to be able to understand it all to be able to be helped by it. Now, I'm not advocating we don't understand the Bible. And I'm certainly not suggesting we ought to not care whether we rightly divide the word of truth. We should. That ought to be eminently important to me. But I love the fact that when they ate this manna, they didn't understand everything about it. But that didn't stop them from getting their bellies full. And if instead they came, you say, preacher, why did it help them even though they couldn't understand it? Because they showed up hungry and they were willing to eat it. And if you'll show up hungry to the Word of God, if you'll open your Bible hungry, you say, but preacher, there's things I don't understand in it. Yeah, join the club. Uh, It's always going to be that way this side of heaven. If that's your excuse for not reading your Bible, go ahead and throw your Bible away because you're never going to find a time that you're going to understand everything in your Bible. If you did, it wouldn't be much of a Bible at all. But the fact is you can still come to it hungry for the truth of the Word of God with an obedient heart and a receptive spirit and a humble mind and God can feed you through it. I find that it was strange. But then look at verse 16. God says this, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Gather of it every man according to his eating, an omer for every man, according to the number of your persons. Take ye every man for them which are in his tents. You say, Preacher, what's an omer? You know when you're at the Mexican restaurant, they bring out that sizzling fajita dish? That's an omer, amen? I'm joking. You all right tonight? Some of y'all said the preachers lost it. And I have, amen, but that's not what I'm... <laughs> no, an omer was an, a measurement, and our Bible tells us a little later on that an omer was a tenth part of an ephah, and we could go into all the description of exactly how much that was. But here's what God wants to communicate, that whenever they would go and gather an omer for each person, it was just enough for them to eat. It wasn't more than they needed, and it sure wasn't less than they needed. It was exactly what they needed. And here's what it reminds me. The Word of God, it's not just strange in the sense that it is unnatural to the natural man because it's spiritually discerned, but it's also sufficient. It gave them what they needed. They didn't starve on manna. They didn't starve on manna. Let me say it again. They didn't starve on manna. We hear all the time, we got a problem with, with uh, famine and hunger. Uh, they'll use the term food insecurity. Uh, and they'll say, we got a problem in this nation. I don't think we do. I don't think we do. You've been to Walmart? I don't think we do. Amen? <laughs> the reality... You all right tonight? You all bowing up on me? You okay tonight? Are you just sleepy? What's the matter? Come on, wake it up now. you got to help me. You want to have a service where I preach like this morning, you got to listen like this morning. And so... Uh, People say, well, preacher, you know, there's just we have all these problems. Now, I don't think the problem in our country is that we don't have enough food. I think the problem is twofold. One, we got uh, too much of the wrong kind of food. We got too much of the wrong kind of food. See, the fact is, if instead we were investing ourselves in that which is healthy and that which is wholesome and that which is nurturing to the soul, we'd probably find out that we've got too much and what we've got is not a good thing. And can I say this? The problem in our country today is not that we don't have enough preaching. It's not that we don't have enough Bible. It's not that we don't have enough church. It's that we got too much of it of the wrong kind. The fact of the matter is, hey, listen, you don't. And I got, I got a whole, I got an office full of books. I mean, I got, I got hundreds. I probably got over a thousand books in my office. Can I tell you, I found that this is all I need. And I still read those books, and I, I gain some encouragement. And I, you know, half the time I walk away, and I still don't know if what they said was right or what they said was wrong. But every time I walk away from this book, I know it was a hundred percent right. And I find this to be true that my Bible is sufficient for the things that I face. If I'll go to the Bible when I'm faced with problems, God will speak the wisdom that I need to know. If I go to the Bible when I'm discouraged and disheartened, God will speak peace into my heart and into my life. When I go to the Bible when I'm fearful and when I'm afraid, God will give boldness and courage to my heart. I find that everything I need in life, I can find in this Bible. But I've got to come to it and I've got to be willing to receive it. Fact is, everything you need for your Christianity is in this book. Peter said this in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And that sounds good. How do we get that? Through the knowledge of Him that call, hath called us to glory and virtue. We get that through His knowledge and through knowledge about Him. We get that through His Word. That's how we learn. That's how we access that. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Because it says in verse 4, Whereby are giving unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." In other words, my Bible is sufficient for whatever needs I may face. Now, if I won't go, listen, you, you can have a pantry full of food, but if you won't go and eat it, it won't help you a bit. You can have a Bible chock full of truth, but if you won't go to it and read it, then you'll, you'll condemn it as insufficient, you'll slander it as weak and as inadequate. But I've found this to be true. When God's people come to the Bible hungry, it never lets them down. I'd say this, man, it's strange and it's sufficient, but here's what verse 31 says about this manna. It says, The house of Israel called the name thereof manna, it says it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Let me say it this way. To those that wanted to eat it, it was sweet. Now, we'll find out here in just a moment that if they neglected it, it spoiled. But for those that came to it hungry, it had a sweet taste. Time would fail us to consider all the properties of honey. It's a unique substance, nothing like it on earth. I mean, God did an amazing thing whenever He uh, created honey and and orchestrated for uh, the honeybees to produce it. It's It's an almost miraculous substance, it almost seems, when you look at it and all the properties and abilities that it has. And yet here the manna is described as tasting as honey. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Word of God is described and likened unto honey as being something that is wholesome, being something that is pure, being something that is sweet to taste. In other words, it is a precious thing. And I'll tell you that in my life, the times when I despise the Word of God is times when I come to it when I'm not hungry. And you say, well, preacher, a person can't help whether to be hungry. Oh, sure they can. If you get out and work, you'll work up an appetite. If you get out and work, you'll work up an appetite. If we lay idle upon the nourishment of God's Word, then it will begin to sour in our belly. But here we find to those that were hungry, it was sweet. I think often, and and people say, I was talking to somebody the other day about this. I think a visiting preacher that was with us. And uh, he he was talking about just the the general secular nature of Christianity today. And I was over here, and he wasn't talking to me. But, you know, I stick my nose in everything, so I was listening and I heard him talking about it and I went up and I mentioned to this fellow and I thought a lot about this. I think I mentioned it from the pulpit afterwards. I said, you know, the reason uh, that we have so much disdain for Bible Christianity is because it really doesn't apply to most people's lives in the way that they live. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, you'll hear people say, well, the Bible's just not relevant to me. And our knee-jerk reactionists always say, oh, yes, it is. Yes, it's, it's eminently relevant. But now let's wait, hold on a second. When you look at the way that Christians are living today, probably a lot of the Bible is not relevant to them. You understand that a good chunk of the New Testament is related to the idea of suffering, and most Christians don't suffer. A lot of the New Testament relates the strength that God gives in times of persecution. Christians ain't persecuted today. I know, hey, listen, we think because they kick us off some social media mess that we probably shouldn't have been on in the first place that, oh, we're so persecuted. Hey, listen, when they start throwing us in pits, we're going to laugh that we ever treated that as persecution. And you say, what are you getting at, preacher? Well, I'm saying this. When you're not living for God, most of the Bible is not relevant to you. But if you'll live for the Lord, you'll find it to be immensely relevant. And I think that in my life, the times that I have slipped into to, to despising the Word of God. And I don't mean with an animosity, but I mean to spurning it, having a cynicism toward it, not loving it and appreciating it and valuing it the way that I should, are times when I was not living for the Lord, but times when I was allowing myself to lay up upon the truth that God had given me and it spoiled and soured in my stomach and I didn't love it anymore. But when I'm living for God, I find it is sweet to the taste. You're trying to serve the Lord. Hey, and you you go to this book and it gives you just what you need. It's sweet. When you're struggling and you need the Lord's grace and Lord's strength and you come to the Bible and you drink deep from that well, hey, it's sweet. I joke with my wife all the time. She'll tell me all the time. She'll say, now, you need to drink some water. And I'll say, I do. I just drink it mixed with sweet tea. Amen. We're getting ready to have our church camp. And one of the things we encourage our workers to do, it's smart to do, is start hydrating like a week or two before you ever get to camp, just start drinking extra water. Because you get up there and sometimes, especially if we have a hot year, it can be hard to drink water at a quick enough pace to be able to replenish what you're sweating out of your body and what you're expending. And I found this to be true in my life. When I'm not thirsty, there's a lot of things I'll drink. But when I'm thirsty, only good, clean, cold well water will do. When When I'm not thirsty, I can drink any number of things. But when I'm thirsty... Only water will do. And can I say this in regards to the relationship you have with your Bible? When you're full, you'll probably snack on anything. But when you get real hungry, you're going to reach for what really satisfies. I see the properties of manna. But then I want you to notice the precepts of the manna. Now, God gave certain commandments regarding how this manna was to be handled and how it was to be treated, how they were to, to respond to it. And he basically has three large principles that were to be guiding of their relationship, that were to guide how they treated the manna. Notice verse number 19. The Bible says this. Moses said, let no man leave of it till the morning. Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto Moses, but some of them left of it until the morning. And it bred worms and stank, and Moses was wroth with them. And they gathered it every morning, every man according to his eating. And when the sun waxed hot, it melted. Three principles in their relationship to the manna. The first was this, it was not to be left out and neglected. The Bible describes how they were to gather an omer full for each person. But what if a person, for whatever reason, did not eat the entirety of that omer? Well, they were to take it and they were to cast it out because if they kept it there in their house, it would turn, it would bring, it breed worms, and it would begin to stink. Likewise, whenever they were gathering it during the day, if a person looked and said, you know, I don't really want that much, I'm going to leave it out and, and I'll come back and get it later, they couldn't because as soon as the midday sun got into the sky and it heated up, it melted it all away from the ground. And the idea is clear in both situations that you're to gather what it takes to feed yourself and you're to consume that which is necessary to feed yourself and you're not to leave any of it out or neglect it or else it won't be there for you later. Preacher, what are you getting at? Well, reminds me of this. Hey, listen, when I come and put myself under the preaching of the word of God, I better eat all I can eat and not leave any of it sitting out. My attitude should not be one of selectively receiving only that which is interesting to me but instead to place myself under the, the, the preaching of God's Word, to seat myself at the dinner table of God's Word, and to eat all that God dispenses for me. If I seek instead to selectively only partake in that which is interesting to me, then here's what I'll find. That which I find not interesting to me, it'll begin to corrupt and stink. Two ways if they left the manna out and neglected it that it would it would spoil. In the night, it spoiled and bred worms. It's a reminder to me that in the dark times of life, if we won't feast on the Word of God, it becomes vile to us. You know, when you're suffering, when you're struggling in life, and your heart is not in a right place, and you're not walking with God, and people come to you and try to give you godly counsel, you'll despise it. You'll resent it. You'll push it away. You'll treat it as an attack. You'll treat it as a hostility. You'll you'll imagine that they're trying to hurt you or trying to judge you or trying to criticize you when that's not what they're trying to do. They're just trying to help you. Why is that, preacher? Because you're not willing to receive that which was already dispensed to you. Instead, you're trying to selectively pick it here and there. I I see in the night it spoiled. I see in the day that it melted. In other words, if they said, well, I don't feel like going out and collecting it now. I'm going to wait till tomorrow and go out and collect it. It wouldn't be there tomorrow. Instead, it had to be collected in the moment. You'll often hear preachers say this when they're preaching to you. This is preventative medicine. You may not even need this right now in your life, but if you'll tuck it away in your heart, God will use it at a later date. And I'll just say this. Hey, listen, if God's speaking to our heart, we better sit up and listen now because we don't know what's coming down the road. I see that it was not to be left out and neglected. But then look with me at verse 21. The Bible says this, They gathered it every morning, every man according to his eating, and when the sun waxed hot, it melted. And it came to pass that on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for one man, and all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. And he said unto them, This is that which the Lord hath said. Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Bake that which ye will bake today, and seed that ye will seed, and that which remaineth over lay up for you to be kept until the morning. And they laid it up till the morning as Moses bade, and it did not stink, neither was there any worm therein. Now, here's the reason I read that is because it is an exception to a rule. And how many of you have heard this before that the exception to the rule simply proves the rule? God tells them on the eve of the Sabbath, God's going to give you double what you need for that day. Because He wants you to observe the Sabbath and He doesn't want you to go out and have to labor on that day. And so He'll give you double and you're commanded to lay up double. And the next day, that's what you'll eat off of. You know why that is? Because of what it says in verse 21. They gathered it every morning. In other words, if a person went out and said, I'm going to gather two days worth on some day other than the eve of the Sabbath and said, then I won't have to go out and work tomorrow. I'll just lay it up and I'll be able to take tomorrow off, go to the lake. If I do that, It will breed worms and stink. But God said, I will give you one exception to that. When it's the Sabbath, I will bless it and honor it and allow it to say wholesome and to say unspoiled so that you can eat it. So that tells me this. Under normal circumstances, the manna was not to be stored up and collected. What do you mean, preacher? Well, they were to consume it when it was given to them. You know, one of the things that is a problem in good churches it's a problem in good churches. It's a problem in churches, and I don't know if it's a problem in our church, but it's a problem in churches like our church. That is cultivating a speculative relationship to the Word of God. I remember hearing years ago, reading years ago, Leonard Raven, he'll make this statement that you can have doctrine as straight as a gun barrel and just as hollow. And if we're not careful, we will allow the preaching of the word of God to devolve into merely a spectator sport in which we are setting and assessing the, the the ability and the and the gifts and the the intellect of the person that is preaching instead of viewing it as a heavenly exercise wherein God gives power and and, and gives unction to a man as he stands to preach the word of God not so that he can get up and snort and stomp not so that he can get up and whoop and holler not so that he can get up and run an aisle or walk the Abused, but so that He, under the, the unction of the Holy Ghost, can speak directly into your life, though He has no knowledge of what you may be going through. And it'll simply become this speculative exercise. We see it all the time, and I feel like it's oftentimes the first step on the road of apostasy because uh, people will begin to to view the preached Word of God and, and they'll begin to judge it under criteria that's not biblical. Can I tell you something? If a sermon's a good sermon, it's not because I said something you've never heard before. It's not what makes it a good sermon. If it's a good sermon, it's not because people shouted and worshipped. I, I, I'm for shouting and worshipping, but that's not what, what, what the function and purpose of what we're doing here when we preach the Word of God is. It's not if I get up and use a bunch of $10 words and sound like I know what I'm talking about. That's not the purpose of it. Rather, the purpose of, a, of the preaching and the exercise of the preaching of the Word of God is that I might be a conduit through which God can speak to your life about something directly that you're going through. And if instead we just view it as this speculative exercise, this, this intellectual stimulation and not as a, as a heavenly work that God's doing in our heart and in our life, we've missed the whole point of preaching. Yeah, I tell you, there's a lot of churches that fall into that trap, and some of them, what they preach is not wrong, but the reason they preach it is wrong. It's not that they're saying something incorrect, but it's that the purpose is that it might be a, 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 a display, that it might be an, a, an example or expression of the intellect of the pastor, or of the talents of the musicians, or even of the friendliness of the people, and that's not what any of this is all about. Instead, it's about the Word of God being able to have intimate, impactful, and powerful influence in your life. It wasn't to be stored up and collected. They weren't to say, well, now, you know, this is beautiful. Let's just stick it back. And, and we won't need it right now, but maybe someday we'll get to it. And often I fear that we allow ourselves to be drawn into that perspective. Well, I don't need it now, but maybe someday. Hey, God knew who'd be here tonight. God knew what you'd need to hear. It was not to be stored up and collected. But then there's a third principle. Verse 25 says this. Moses said, eat that today. That's my life verse, amen. Eat that today. For today is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Today ye shall not find it in the field. Six days ye shall gather it. But on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath in it, there shall be none. And it came to pass that there went out some of the people... On the seventh day for together, and guess what they found? Uh, preacher, what happened to them? Well, if they was like most people, they probably missed a meal and died. Amen? Instead, they go out to collect it, and here's what they found. They found because they wouldn't collect it when they need when when it was given, then when they desired, it wasn't there for them to collect. Let me say it this way. It was not to be stored up and collected. It was not to be left out and neglected. But it was not to be taken for granted and expected. They weren't to just assume that it would always be there. But instead, they were to approach it in obedience to God's word, in hunger and to desire for the appropriate amount to be given them because they knew there might come a time that we need it and we cannot get it all over this world there's believers that struggle to get under bible preaching and they're sincere but they live in places where it's outlawed they live in places where where there is none they live in places where the witness of of Jesus Christ is is, is minimal and you and i man we get to come into a place like this and when our church has problems you know why cuz it's got people i'm gonna say that again our church has problems you know why cuz it's got people and even if none of y'all showed up, it'd still have problems because the preacher's a people. Last I checked, he is. The fact of the matter is, our church just got. But hey, listen, that we could come into a place like this, Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, Friday after Friday, and meet with God and worship, and find a group of people that's just that's just themselves and they're sincere in their love for the Lord and and and, and they got problems and flaws, but they they really love one another and they really love the Lord and want to please Him. Hey, what a precious thing that is. That ain't just everywhere. I'm not saying it's only here, but it ain't just everywhere. And here Moses cautions him against assuming the manna will be out there every day. He says, instead, recognize that in the matter of the of, of the Sabbath, in the principle of collecting for the Sabbath, God has given you this so that He might ready you for this day of rest. And in many ways, though it was a day of rest, it was a day of obedience unto the Lord. We might use the term worship or service, even though we understand it was meant for their uh, rest and for uh, their refreshment. He was saying, I'm getting you ready for a time that you're going to need this. And don't imagine... Imagine that you can just walk out into the field and grab anything you need because when the day comes, it will not be there. I would say this, that in our attitude towards the Word of God, we shouldn't just always assume that we're always going to have the freedoms we have, Amen. that we're always going to have the opportunities that we have. Amen. I was preaching this morning in Sunday school in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says this, redeeming the time for the days are evil. And that word evil, it can mean moral, uh, immoral and unrighteous. It can mean wicked. But oftentimes the word evil in your Bible, it doesn't mean immoral, unrighteous or wicked. It means unpleasant unpalatable, like Job used it when he said we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil. He wasn't saying the Lord sinned against him. He was saying that the Lord allowed hard times to come in our life. And Paul's saying, hey, we better spend our time serving God because we may come into hard times when it's not so easy to serve God. And let me tell you, hey, we we better eat the manna while it's there because we may come to a time in this country where it's not as easy to sit under Bible preaching, where it's not as easy to walk down the street with a Bible under your arm, where it's not as easy to go down to a book Store And pick one up where they 're not sitting on every single hotel at nightstand, we might come to a time when there's a scarcity of the witness of the Word of God in this country. Instead, we ought to approach it with a hunger and desire for it. So God gave some precepts concerning this man, but now, once you notice a final thought i 'm going to just say a word about it and be done i won to say a word about the perpetuity of the man now perpetuity that ain 't that gland that makes you grow big perpetuity is something to be done indefinitely, in continuation. And it's interesting, let me just say it this way, all right? Listen, look at verse 32, then I'll say it. The Bible says, and Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commandeth: Fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. So he says this to the people. Then he says to Aaron verse 33 Moses said unto Aaron take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations as the Lord commanded Moses so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept the children of Israel did eat manna 40 years until they came to a land inhabited they did eat manna until they came unto the borders of the land of Canaan so think about this for a moment there's two places where the manna will spoil. It'll spoil in the pantry and it'll spoil on the ground. If they try to store it up and not eat it, or if they neglect it and leave it out on the ground, then it'll spoil. It'll either stink or it will melt away. And it's a reminder that if we try to cultivate a speculative relationship with the Word of God, where instead of feasting on it, we just want to store it up like the purpose of it is the learning of catechisms in parochial school, we'll grow to despise it, and we'll grow to to neglect it, and we'll grow to to have a disdain for it. Or if we say instead, well, I don't need that right now, maybe it'll be there later when I need it, we'll find that's not the case. Uh, But rather that the, the pressure of this world, the heat of this world will melt it away and it'll dissipate. You can't leave it in the pantry and you can't leave it on the ground. But there's two places that it wouldn't spoil. It wouldn't spoil, number one, in your belly. If you'd eat it when it was offered to you, it wouldn't spoil there. And I'll tell you, the people that love the Bible is the people that love the Bible. You listen to me? You want to know who loves the Bible? The people that love the Bible. In other words, people that read the Bible love the Bible. People that love the Bible read the Bible. And you'll find that if you neglect the Bible, you'll grow to despise it. But if instead you'll faithfully, diligently stay in this book, that God will will continue to feed you and make it more rich and more sweet for you day by day. It wouldn't spoil in the the belly. But then there's another place that it wouldn't spoil. It wouldn't spoil on the shelf. Now, here's what I mean by that. There were two instructions that were given. I never saw this before I read this. Uh, In preparation for this, uh, Moses looks at Aaron and he says, I want you to take a pot of this and I want you to put it in the Ark of the Covenant. And there it will not spoil. So preacher, what does that teach us? It teaches us this, that in the eyes of God, the word of God is settled. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's settled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But then he also commanded the children of Israel. To take one pot, one omer of manna, and to lay it up and to store it, not that they would eat that, but that it would be a perpetual testimony to the generations to come for what God did for them. In other words, this was not them setting it back saying, well, if we get hungry, we can eat it later. But it was them setting it back saying, I always want to be able to show my children how God provided for us. it teaches us three things about the manna and its perpetuity. Let me say, number one, it was a perpetual proof of God keeping his promises. It was meant that they might be able, when a little child looked up on the mantle and saw that pot sitting there and said, Mama, what is that? Daddy, what is that? That they could take that down and open the lid of it and show them the manna inside. By the way, you say, well, preacher, I'm not sure that I read it like that. We know it's interesting. Moses says that ye might see it. He says this is a proof for your generation. You know that pot of manna in the Ark of the Covenant no man would have ever seen? Right. Nobody would have ever seen that. It had to, in other words, be a different pot of manna if it was meant to be a witness and testimony to the nation of Israel in generations to come. The only person that would have seen the pot of manna that was in the ark would have been the Lord Himself. Even the Kohathites, when they moved the ark, they didn't see the materials of the ark. Aaron would go in and cover all of those things. And we have no reason to believe they even took those things out of the ark when it was transported. It's likely that when that pot of manna was taken and put it in the ark, that it was never again seen by human eye. There would have been no need to. So Moses, he must be talking about a personal pot of manna that they were to, to keep. And they, they were, you imagine this little kid saying, Mom, now what is that? And she takes it and she opens it up and says, You see that, son? That is what God provided for us with all those years in the wilderness. It's interesting to think that it was the, the stewardship of the people of God to preserve the manna. Let me just say, a lot of a lot of this uh, new Bible... Corruptions and perversions really began to take foothold in our country when we outsource the preservation of God's Word to godless publishing houses instead of the local church being the custodians of the Word of God. Gee, Zondervan don't care nothing about the inspiration of Scripture. Nelson don't care nothing about the inspiration of Scripture. Half in places, they they publish pornography and satanic material, all those other things. You see, it's always been the, the, the custodianship of God's people to preserve His word, God promised he would preserve his word and he has preserved his word. And it's interesting to note that God's heart and desire was that his people never be left without proof of his preservation. He said, I want you to keep this pot of manna up there. That way you can teach generation after generation. I began to think about this today and I don't even know how much more of this I'll get preached before the Lord stops me. But I began to think about this today. Now, if that's true, I believe it to be true that the commandment that Moses gives initially is to the people. Because he's saying, you'll see this. It'll be a witness to your generations. And they wouldn't have seen what was in the ark, so he must be talking about a different pot of uh, of manna. But then I began to think about the fact that nowhere else in Scripture is it described anybody's interaction with or attitude towards their pot of manna. And it sort of gives you the impression that God commanded this, but one of two things happened. Either the people never did this, or if they did it, it was very short-lived. I began to think today about that moment in which someone took a pot of that manna and said, what's this old thing? And threw it out. I began to wonder how a person could ever get to that point. And then God pressed on my heart exactly how. You see, to the people that filled that pot, it was a precious substance. Proof of the promise of God. And probably they would have took that pot of manna and set it on their mantelpiece. And probably every time they walked by it, they would have looked at the children and said, now kids, you remember what this is? You know what this is? You know how important this is? But then probably another generation would have come along. They would have said, yeah, that's the pot of manna. As a matter of fact, now that you mention that, that is. is—that's God used that to feed my parents or my grandparents when they were in the wilderness till we got to the land of Canaan. Some point within that generational cycle, there would have been some parent that never took the time to explain what was in that pot. And probably the next generation would have hung on to it. They would have treated it as an heirloom. They would have said, I don't really know what it is, but it was important to mama, so, you know, we hang on to it. Then a generation after that would have treated it not as an heirloom, but as an antique. They would have said, I don't really know what the significance of it was, but it's pretty old, I guess. Well, hung on to it. And then finally, the next generation would have seen it as junk and just pitched it out. Why are we going to keep this old thing? I don't even know what it is. Why are we even going to keep this thing? I don't even know what it is. And my mama didn't know what it was. And her mama didn't know what it was. And nobody knows what it is. Why are we even keeping this old piece of junk, this old pot filled full of whatever, this old meal or grain its probably spoiled anyway? And they just pitched it out. What an indictment that is, your life and mine. If I want my children to value the Word of God, I've got to teach them the Word of God. If I don't want them one day saying, well, what is that old book? I don't even know what it is. I don't even know what's in it. What's the point of it? It offends my friends. It offends my co-workers. It offends my teachers. Why should I even keep that thing around? I mean, I don't even understand it. Let's just throw that old book out. That's happened generation after generation in our country. Why? Well, because somebody did not maintain it as a perpetual proof. See, the pot of manna only had value in as much as the people that were custodians of it would explain the significance of it and would point to it as a witness. I see it was a perpetual proof, but now why would God take a a pot of it and put it within the Ark of the Covenant? Because, you know, Deuteronomy tells us this, that the, the purpose behind the manna being given was that they would understand that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And so the manna was a picture not just of God's Scripture, but of the promise of God to His people. And there was a pot that was kept in the ark that God would be consistently reminded of His promise to provide for the children of Israel. You know, one of the things I I love about this book, I don't just love its precepts, I love its promises. They're perpetual promises. Some of them are conditional. Some of them are unique in, in the people groups that they deal with and apply to. But when I get into some of that exceeding great and precious promises Peter wrote about, man, I just want to have church. And I'm reminded of what all God's done for me and how that God, He never lies and He keeps all of His promises and He always meets our needs. It was a perpetual promise. And then finally, look at verse 35. The Bible says this, The children of Israel did eat manna forty years until they came to a land inhabited. They did eat manna until they came under the borders of the land of Canaan. It's interesting, that phrase, a land inhabited. A settling place, a resting place, a final place that they would be at. And it's a reminder to me that, hey, listen, they ate the manna the entire time of their sojourn. And not till they got to the place that they could eat of the new corn of the land did the manna dissipate and cease and fail. But the whole time of their sojourn, there was always manna to meet their needs. And it reminds me of this, that it was a perpetual provision for them. Long as they needed it, it was enough. You know why we think it's not enough? Because we think we've quit needing it. But the whole long years of your sojourn in this life, this will always meet your needs. It will always be enough for you. Hey, there's coming a day we won't need a Bible. Because we'll worship at the feet of Him who is the Bible. But until that day comes, boy, we sure enough need that manna. We sure enough need a right relationship and a right attitude towards it. I wonder if our relationship and attitude towards the Word of God is right. If it's not, hey, tonight would be a great night to get that where it needs to be. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to invite you to meet the Lord in the altar. And if God's spoken to you about some area of your life, Could be your habits with the Bible. Could be your attitude towards the Bible. Could be your desire for the Bible. But whatever it is, why don't you meet the Lord in this altar? Let Him have His will and way. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.